I, um, I'm going to date myself here, but uh, my favorite movie of all time is Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I remember uh, being in high school when the movie came out and going to the movie theater and just being absolutely blown away. And it wasn't so long after that movie re was released that I saw Harrison Ford in a TV interview. And the questioner said uh, to Harrison Ford, recounting all of his accomplishments that he had achieved up to that point, and the interviewer asked somewhat um, facetiously, with all that you've done, Harrison Ford, what else is there for you to achieve? And Harrison Ford responded with one word answer, peace. He lacked peace. When many people think of peace, they generally think of the benefits of peace, right? A, a sense of well-being, uh, tranquility, security in life, and not having the things in life like worry and turmoil and fear. And oftentimes we think that the way of obtaining those things is trying to balance the many things in life uh, that would we think would achieve peace for us. Uh, for instance, if we have a loving and supportive family, if we have a well-paying and satisfying career, if we are able to enjoy good health and we live in a nice home in an area with low crime, if we um, have many opportunities for entertainment that can help us handle the stress of trying to have it all in life, and so on and so forth, that, that people think that if we're able to balance those things, and it's difficult... Um, that we'll be able to achieve peace. My wife Connie and I raised four children. Um, I remember those days quite well, and peace would not be a word that I would often use to describe our household um, that was often very hectic and flourishing, um, and, uh, as I'm sure many of your homes and households are as well. So if we have all of these blessings, they're wonderful to have, but they're poor foundations for peace. We can point to many examples, can't we, of people who don't have those wonderful blessings, and yet they seem to abound with peace. And we can point to other people who have more, a great abundance of those wonderful blessings, and they lack peace. Now, again, I'll date myself. Uh, you might remember the movie Field of Dreams. Um, Ray Kinsella, played by uh, Kevin Costner, um, is an Iowa corn farmer. And he's out in his cornfield, and he hears a voice uh, telling him, build it and they will come, referring to a, a baseball stadium. And later on, he's encouraged by this voice in the cornfield to go the distance. So with his wife's agreement, he plows under a, a bunch of acres of, of cornfield, and he uh, builds this baseball stadium. And he's in danger of losing the farm. And Terrence Mann, who's played by James Earl Jones, um, says that he gets off the, the, the bleachers on the first base side where he's seated, and he says to Kinsella, he says, Ray, they will come, Ray. And he goes on to say that these people that are going to come will gladly pay good money to see the stadium and his dream because, he says, money they have and peace they lack. So if the abundance of blessings is not the foundation for peace, or the absence of blessing is not the foundation for peace, what is the foundation for peace by which we can enjoy life? 
The topic of peace has been an often researched subject um, among clinical psychologists and, and sociologists. And it's often done under the title and the heading of a sense of well-being. And for decades, there has been a U-shaped curve that reflects the sense of well-being. That, in other words, that when you're younger, you, uh, a younger adult, you have a high sense of well-being. And when you get to midlife, that sense of well-being dips a little. And then it raises again when you're older in life. But earlier this year, the um, Program for Human Flourishing at Harvard University released a very troubling study in which they found that the left side of that curve has completely flattened out. Among young adults, there is a startling lack of a sense of well-being um, within their lives. Uh, in an article in the, the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, Dr. Tyler uh, Vanderweel writes that there has been an alarming increase in mental health issues and loneliness among young adults and adolescents, along with a corresponding decline in a sense of happiness, physical health, meaning, character, social relationships, and financial stability among younger people. In fact, he goes on to mention that it is a crisis in meaning, identity, and connection. Now, there have been many studies, of course, that have tried to discern why is it that younger people have such a decline in a sense of well-being. People point to things like uh, the, the pressures of comparison of social media, always being on by technology, things like a worldwide pandemic and a lack of opportunity, and those kind of things. But the decline across so many aspects of well-being suggests something more fundamental is at work. Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia University is a, a clinical psychologist and a brain researcher um, who has written that the absence of support for children's spiritual growth has contributed to alarming rates of depression, substance abuse, addictive behaviors, and, and a decrease of well-being. It's interesting that after decades of being told that all that exists is in this world, all that exists is what we can weigh and measure, and the spiritual does not exist, that we're finding that people are experiencing a lack of well-being because there's an absence of support for children's spiritual growth. A 2003 review of research of the role of religion in the lives of American adolescents has found that parents and their own religious practices are among the strongest influences on the religious behavior of adolescents. Not only in terms of how parents model and teach their children, but also in the manner in which they interact with their children. Miller's research on the brain reveals that when adolescents and young adults use their natural spiritual capacities, they move from loneliness and isolation to connection, from competition and division to compassion and altruism, from entrenched focus on wounds, problems, and losses to an openness of the journeyness to an openness of the journey of life. And they also remark that if that innate spiritual capacity is not nourished, that it will atrophy. 
And that's why writers like Lisa Miller and Tyler Vanderweel are concerned about a growing generation that has grown up without the benefit of collective worship experiences or observe religious behaviors in their parents. Now, these researchers were not, for instance, Christians writing to support their Christian faith. Uh, These researchers were not individuals who were advocating any particular type of religious background as being important for their children's development, but the fact that it would occur. But it does raise an interesting question, does it not? Which religion, if parents are interested in helping their children to flourish, should they cultivate in order to help their children along? And it raises the age-old question that we often hear, right? That there are many paths that lead to God, that you can participate in whatever religion it is, but you'll get there ultimately in the end. Now, one of the things that I find interesting when, when people often make that remark is that they really haven't taken a close look at what those religions, those various religions, teach. Because those various religions would not agree with that statement, that there are various paths that lead to God. Now, of course, there are a few that certainly do, but most don't. So being in a Christian church this morning, and and, uh, for for those of you that send your your children to uh, the Westtown Christian Academy for for preschool, uh, what sets Christianity apart from other world religions? Well, it really boils down to this, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, all all the other uh, religions of the world have presented prophets and sages who have said, this is the way in which you can find God. Christianity comes along and says, this person, Jesus, is God, and it's proven to you by his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Now, of course, if you look at the historical evidence on any given topic, there's no way that you can absolutely conclusively prove something. But if you look at the evidence for the um, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be led to the resounding conclusion that Jesus Christ indeed did rise again from the dead and is the Son of God. However, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his followers. And he, uh, remember the morning of the resurrection, he appears to some of his followers Um, There's an interlude in time, and then that evening, Jesus appears to his followers. And we read in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21, that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, after his crucifixion, Jesus' followers were in extraordinary turmoil. They were confused. And you can imagine that fear was at the very top of the list because the religious leaders who put Jesus to death more than likely were looking for his main disciples and wanted to put them to death as well in order to squash what they considered to be sedition against the Roman government. And so these men uh, were huddled together. They were sheltering in place, if you will, out of fear. And Jesus appears to them and he says, peace be with you. 
And before he leaves, Jesus repeats that same greeting, and he says, peace be with you. Now, eight days later, even though they've seen Jesus uh, several times, risen from the dead, they're still sheltering in place. They're still fearful, and Jesus appears in their midst again eight days later, and he says, extends to them the same greeting, peace be with you. Now, the relationship between the basis of peace and its benefits are seen in what appears to be a very incongruous statement of Jesus in verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says to these fearful souls sheltering in place, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am, uh, even so I am sending you. Now, in effect, Jesus is saying to these understandably frightened bunch of people, have peace, and you go out there and you minister to the very people who you think are going to take your life. It seems like craziness to us, doesn't it? How can Jesus assure people of peace and then put them in the circumstances that threatens that peace? Well, Jesus is pointing to the foundation for their peace. A few weeks earlier, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus was telling his followers that he was going to be crucified and he would die. Naturally, they were greatly troubled by that news. And Jesus said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then later in John chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus says to them, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you like the rest of the world, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In the same conversation, Jesus asserts that this peace would not depend on their circumstances. Whether they were alone in their apartment with their friends or whether they were out in the community among hostile enemies, their peace would not change. Jesus says to them in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Many other religions encourage people to seek peace with God. In Christianity, the God of peace seeks us. He came to us and Jesus Christ, his son, who took on himself our nature so that he might represent God to us and he might represent us to God in our very nature. And if you look between these sayings of Jesus about peace, sandwiched in between them were his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is peace. He is the fullness of all blessing in himself and exercising those blessings. He does so. He has identified himself with our well-being and blessedness. Jesus asserts that if you establish your peace upon the right foundation, then you can possess peace with God that will enable you to experience the peace of God within your life. When you have peace with God, you can experience the peace of God in any situation. Now, many today desire 
the blessings of peace, right? The sense of tranquility, well-being, and security. But they want to have them apart from, the, uh, apart from peace with God. It's the ancient rebellion of wanting the blessings of God, but not wanting God himself. And as the researchers have noted, our young people's decline in well-being can be linked to that spiritual disengagement. It's the classic folly of building a house without a foundation. So how then is it can we have peace with God? As I mentioned, Jesus speaks these promises of peace in between his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, where what took place was that Jesus Christ took upon himself the punishment for our sin that we deserved, and he paid that penalty on the cross. And in exchange for that, Jesus gives us his righteous life that he lives fulfilling the commandments of God in our behalf so that if we trust in Christ, if we believe in him as our savior, then God sees us as perfectly righteous and his anger for our sin has been satisfied and he is free to love and relate to us. The apostle Paul says it like this in chapter five, verse one of the letter of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain in verses 8 through 11 that God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, By the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I know the the topic of the wrath of God can be very troubling. Next week, I'm preaching on that topic, how can a loving God have wrath? Uh, I'll put off questions about that topic until next time. But Christ's gift of peace with God is received by faith that humbly admits to God that we failed, that we have not always loved him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved each other and people that are different from us and even people who we would consider to be our enemies in the same way in which we love ourselves. And as a result, we are worthy of God's displeasure and punishment for our sin. There's nothing that we can do to change it. Nothing that we can do to alter it or improve it. But Jesus, as the God of peace, who has identified himself with our well-being, has come as the Prince of Peace, and he has paid that penalty. He has fulfilled that righteousness, that by believing in him, we might have new life. Now, there are some who um, think of this idea of substitution as, as a rather cruel thing. How is it that that God is just or God is loving, that he would take punishment for one person's sin and cause that punishment to be placed upon somebody else. Individuals um, sometimes describe God as a monster that way. How could a father do that to his son? But we have to remember that Jesus, as the second person of the eternal Trinity, is God himself. When Jesus came and he bore the penalty for our sin, God was taking upon himself his own judgment for our sin so that we might have newness of life. In Charles Dickens' book, 
a tale of two cities. There are, are three characters, at least for this story. Um, Charles Darnay, uh, Sidney Carton, and uh, Lucy Minette. Now, both men love Lucy, and Lucy, however, chooses to marry Charles Darnay. And many years after their, their wedding, Charles Darnay, during the, the French Revolution, is imprisoned, and he is going to be executed by guillotine. Now, Sidney, who loves Lucy so much and somewhat resembles Charles in appearance, goes and visits Charles in the prison, drugs him, changes his clothes, and has Charles carried out of the prison, and Sidney is going to stand in his place, and he's going to be executed on Charles' behalf. And there's another death row uh, person, uh, a seamstress, who is witnessing what is taking place, and she says to him, stranger, will you hold my hand? So that she could be strengthened by this man's sacrifice on behalf of the woman that he loved so that her husband could live. You see, substitution, the idea of a substitutionary love isn't monstrous. It's beautiful. And it shows us how extraordinary God has loved us through his son, Jesus Christ. When we realize what Jesus did for us, it changes everything. It changes the way in which we regard God. It changes the way in which we regard ourselves. It changes the way in which we regard all of life and how we experience peace. While our sense of well-being and tranquility and security in Christ may rise or diminish based on our circumstances, absolutely nothing can ever erode the foundation of that peace because it is based on the perfect life and the glorious work of Jesus Christ. And by nurturing that peace, as we read God's word, as we pray, as we fellowship with other believers, then that peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. There's a Christian musician by the name of Merle Womack who uh, was piloting a plane that he took off from Beaver Marsh, Oregon. And shortly after takeoff, the plane went down and it crashed through the treetops and it landed and it burst out in flames and uh, Merle Womack tumbled out of the plane, he totally engulfed in flames and people were driving by and saw what took place and so they ran and they doused the flames and they put carefully uh, Mr. Womack in their car and as they were speeding along to the hospital, his fellow passengers were amazed at what was coming out of the mouth of this body that was in absolute excruciating pain because he was quoting the words of a hymn. And he said, I found my dear Savior and I'm made whole. I'm pardoned and I have my release. His spirit abiding and blessing my soul. Praise God in my heart, there is peace. Wonderful peace, wonderful peace. When I think how he brought me from darkness to light, there is a wonderful, wonderful peace. Because Womack had peace with God through Jesus Christ, he was able to experience the peace of God in terms of a tranquility and a sense of well-being, even in the midst of some extraordinarily painful circumstances. Now, in his recovery, he endured many dark days afterwards. And he struggled with his faith and why God allowed what happened to happen to him. 
But because his faith was based upon the foundation of Christ and not the strength of his own faith, God ultimately restored to him the blessings of that faith and peace and the peace that passes all understanding. So this discussion about peace and our foundation for peace raises a couple questions for us. Are we at peace with God? Do we know that, yes, in fact, we are sinful people and we're sort of in a bad way in and of ourselves because we can't change our situation before God. And that we have offended a holy and righteous God who has been so good and bountiful to us and all of the blessings that he showered upon us. And if we recognize that that is our condition, but yet we have faith that God has provided an escape for us through his son, Jesus Christ, by his mercy, scripture assures us that if we believe in Christ for our salvation and we commit to live for him, the scripture says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. You know, if you were to start at the equator and travel north, you would ultimately get to a point at the North Pole that you would begin traveling south. But if you stand on the equator and you start traveling west, you will never cross a point where you were to travel east. That is how far God has removed our sins from us if we are resting in Christ for our salvation. Scripture says that our shame, our guilt has been paid for fully in Christ and we can have peace with him if we rest in him for our salvation. There's a little acronym that summarizes the good news, or that's what the word gospel means, is good news. If you take each letter of the word gospel, you can spell out, God offers sinful people eternal life. And that is what the good news is. That's how we can have peace with God if we rest in Christ for our salvation. But beyond that, we are able to experience the peace of God in life. Parents can help point their children to Christ, whereby they can also find peace and have a sense of well-being, where they can find tranquility and a sense of security and what Christ has done for them. That's why I'm so grateful for ministries like Westtown Christian Academy and Kids Town and Westtown Student Ministries that help children to be pointed to Christ that they might grow in peace and the peace of God and to come alongside parents and to partner with them and this wonderful blessing of raising children in God's ways. We often conclude worship uh, sermons here with ways that we can pray for the church at large um, about some of uh, the things that we have learned from Scripture. So I'd encourage you this week, as you pray for West Town, I, I often say every time that you sit down and say grace at a meal, you put food in your mouth, pray for West Town. Ask the Lord to bless our families, to be homes where the peace with God and the peace of God flourishes. Ask the Lord to bless ministries like West Town Christian Academy, West Town Student Ministries, Kids Town, that together we would partner with parents in equipping their children to grow in God's peace. Let us pray.